she just broke into prayer and was just like, Jesus, give my daddy energy today. Amen. And it was just so, she was chomping on toast, like in the middle of it. Friends, you know, I don't know at this point, I don't know if it's because I have kids and I just have no control anymore, but I went into my bathroom and I found, of all the things you could find in the bathroom, a tuba. I don't even know where my kids found a tuba, but there was a tuba right on the bathroom sink. Granted, it was a tuba toothpaste, but I digress. I don't know why I just really loved that joke when I saw it and I just, I had to tell it. So anyways, welcome back friends. It's so good to be with you uh, once again. I love recording these little intros. I haven't done this in so long, so it's nice to be just letting you know where things are at. Um, and so let's get into uh, Joy, Junk, and Jesus before we get into our episode today. Um, I'm going to do junk first, y'all, because um, junk, I don't know what my body is doing. So, you know, you know, I have Hashimoto's disease, found out about that recently, and um, which is, is fine. It's manageable and things like that. But I developed all of these habits with like fasting and, and the certain way I eat. And I've been doing that for, you know, four years now and lost 90 pounds doing that. And now uh, in the last three months, I've been going to the gym for the first time. And so that's kind of changed my metabolism and things like that. And so with this like low energy, going to the gym in the morning, but fasting until the evening, I'm like, I'm a wreck. And so um, I, I need to figure out like food. Does anyone know how food works? Can you please call me and tell me? Um, or supplements, pre-workout, post-workout. I don't know any of that stuff. And I know some of it, probably 98% of it is just garbage or just not that great or it's too artificial or whatever. But if you have like any knowledge in that area whatsoever, let me know because I'm lost. So anyways, hopefully by next episode, I will have figured something out. But a joy that I have is, um, I mean, there's a couple things, but uh, tonight, I'm recording this on Tuesday, March 29th. So tonight and the next uh, two nights after that, so from the 29th to the 31st, I'll be giving a parish mission at St. Mary's in Fullerton. And so by the time you hear this episode, that will have already happened. But I, I ask that you pray for me because God is outside of time and he can retroactively ap apply those prayers uh, to me giving this mission. But um, because of that, and I knew that I've had this low energy dip throughout the day because um, of... Um, the fatigue and all of that. Um, I had breakfast today and I love breakfast and I almost never get to have it. So I have it on weekends with, for my, my feast days, but, um, just to have it like randomly on my own, you know, grab a little something. It was just really nice. Um, but my big joy is Natalie, Natalie Kovochak, my amazing friend and listener of this podcast, uh, recorded such a sweet little video, um, just talking about the podcast and what it means to her and sent it to me for us to use, um, on social media or, um, you know, on the podcast. And so that just was really touching to me. So, um, go check us out on, um, Instagram at man of food for thought, and you'll get to see that there. Such a gift, Natalie. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, and my Jesus moment, um, was definitely that Natalie, th um, video as well. Um, but there's this little moment that happened today after I got done with my workout, I came home and got ready and I was sitting down with the kids as they were eating breakfast and just kind of chatting with my wife before I went off to do uh, to go to work and run some errands and things and so I was telling my wife I was like you know what I think I'm gonna eat breakfast today because I'm a little low on energy and without like any prompting whatsoever 
my daughter Hannah, who's um, you know three, uh, almost four, before in July. It was just so she was chomping on toast like in the middle of it, but it was just so endearing and pure and innocent and beautiful that it was just it was it was beautiful, and so yeah, that was my Jesus moment. Such a gift. Um, so this episode is a kind of a part two in this little three-part series that we're doing on Scripture. This is a pre-recorded talk that I gave to our RCIA community, uh, particularly on the Old Testament. What is the content, the themes, the structure? How do we interpret and look at the Old Testament? How do we uh, see it as Catholics? How do we understand it? How does it contribute to our overall spiritual life and prayer? How do we use it? And so I hope this is a benefit to you. Uh, if there are any resources or handouts mentioned in the talk, they will be linked in the show notes. And next week will be uh, a kind of part three final uh, piece to this uh, pairing of today, Old Testament. Next time will be the New Testament. And so uh, without further ado, enjoy. What makes a good story? I want you to think about your favorite story, your favorite novel, maybe your favorite series. What makes it good? What makes it attractive? What makes you, when you start reading that first page of a new book, to not be able to put it down and have to keep turning second page, third page, to see what's going to happen? Maybe you're one of those weird people who reads the very last page because you just can't handle it. Um, don't do that with the Bible. It'll just be weird and difficult to understand Revelation. But maybe you're that type of person. But I think for most of us who love story, whether it's in film, whether it's in TV, whether if it's in book form, there's something about it that is attractive. And I'm of the belief that every story steals some facet of its plot from the Bible, the ultimate story, because there is so much intrigue, attractive qualities, so many things that make the Bible so appealing. There is romance, there's adventure and action, war, uh, violence, there's all these things. Uh, did you know that there's an erotic love poem in the Bible? It's been said, actually, that if the Bible were accurately made into a movie or TV series, as it was, that it would have to be X-rated. That is the craziness. And when I, believe me, when I would tell teenage boys that, they'd be like, what? the Bible and start flipping? So not a great reason to dive into the Bible, but... You know, we do what we can with teenage boys. So, um, speaking from experiences, formerly being one of them. Uh, but there's so many different things in scripture that are so attractive. The stories of the talking donkey. One of my favorite stories um, of Ehud, the judge in the book of Judges. You may not know this story, but he kills the king uh, uh, Eglon, who is so fat that his arm and dagger are lost in the fat of this king. It's like described in detail in the book of Judges. You're like, why is this in the Bible? Like, we pray with this book. It's crazy. So there's so many things in Scripture that we gloss over, we may not know, but that make it such a fascinating story. The Bible is not a mythical tale. It's not the legend of Hercules. It's not something from days past just to make people feel comfortable or just to have a story about where they came from. It is real, true history about real people who God has chosen, who God desires to love and be in relationship with. Now, remember I said this last week. The overall theme of the entire Bible is this, that God loves us and he wants to be united with us. That's the overall story. That's the overall why. That's why we have this book. That's why we continue to read it, to hear stories of how through history God has loved us and desired to be in relationship with us. And so this morning we're going to talk about the First Testament. It's a little insulting to call it the Old Testament because it is still valid. God is still faithful to everything he did in that. The Jewish people are still the chosen people. 
And so we're going to talk about that first testament, the Hebrew Bible this morning, which has within it a lot of those confusing, weird, and interesting stories that maybe we've never heard or we gloss over or it's difficult to find the meaning in, and how we understand that whole great portion of Scripture. Three quarters of this Bible is the Old Testament, the first testament. And yet it's probably the piece of Scripture that we are least familiar with. The Hebrews, the Jewish people, our brothers and sisters, they call the Old Testament the Tanakh. They call it the Tanakh. T-N-K. And that stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. That means Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law. The Nevi'im are the prophets. So all the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. But that also includes Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And then the Ketuvim, which means the writings. And that's all of the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Wisdom, Sirach, Ecclesiastes, as well as um, a, lot of the other, um, a lot of the other historical books like Job, uh, Chronicles, other stories like that. Now, they have 24 books in the Tanakh, and it looks a little bit different just in how they're arranged because, like I said last week, we have the Greek translation that Jesus quotes from. And we talked about a little bit why our Protestant brothers and sisters have seven less, because they're just not in Greek. But the question really is, like, why do we keep any of these books at all? Like, what's the whole point? What is the point of having the Old Testament if we're not Jewish? And that is because, as St. Augustine once said, that the old is revealed in the new, and the new is hidden in the old. We cannot understand Jesus and the whole point of the New Testament, why he came, why we have the church, if we don't read and understand the themes and the story of the Old Testament. And that if we read the New Testament, we're going to start picking up on things like, what is this talking about? And not realize it's revealing what has already happened before it. And it'd be kind of like diving into a story and opening up a novel halfway through and suddenly trying to understand these characters and who all these people are without having any of the context of what's happened before. So we can't think to do that with the Bible. You can't just simply start in the New Testament and completely ignore the fact that there's this whole history, this whole context behind what is in the New. We retain these scriptures because we are a Judeo-Christian religion. That means we cannot understand who we are as Catholics without understanding that we came from the faith of our Jewish brothers and sisters, the chosen people of Israel who God reached out to and said, I will be your God and you will be my people through whom I will redeem and save the entire world. And he did because he created the Catholic Church through them, which means what? Catholic means universal, the whole world. So we cannot understand the mission that we are fulfilling if we don't first know the mission that God initiated in the First Testament. The overall theme of the First Testament, of the Old Testament, is one word. Okay, If you pick up anything else, nothing else from this morning, remember this word, covenant. Say it with me, covenant. A covenant is an exchange. So just like you might hire someone to do work in your home, as I've had to do many times, as you've heard me complain about and whine about over the past year, that is an exchange of goods. That is a contract. I sign a contract. I give them consent to do a certain thing. I agree to pay them a certain amount of money. And in my recent experience, they do it very, very badly, and they have to keep coming back. But eventually, the contract is settled. And then we never see each other again. We part ways. A covenant is different. A covenant is an exchange, not of goods, but of persons. Where one person says, I give myself completely and totally to you, and the other person says, I also give myself completely and totally to you. What does that sound like? Marriage. marriage. 
A covenant is I do. I do give myself entirely to you. When we go up to the altar and we receive communion and they say the body of Christ, what do we say? Amen, Amen which in Hebrew means I do. I believe it. I do. That is a covenant, an exchange of persons. The word covenant in Greek is testament. That's why we say Old Testament and New Testament. It's the old covenant, the first covenants, and the new covenant in Jesus Christ. In Latin, it translates to sacramentum. That's why we are a sacramental church. We have seven sacraments because these are the ways we enter into that covenant relationship with God now today as a church in all the different phases of our life. So we cannot understand the Old Testament without understanding the covenants. Now, I'm not going to go into them very in depth this morning, but in the resources that you have, if you open past the timeline, you will see the six major covenants of Scripture and salvation history. If you need one of these resources, they're over here on the cart as well with some Bibles and things like that if you'd like them. But the covenants that God made with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and then the fullness of that being realized in the person of Jesus, the ways in which he reached out to say, hey, I am God, you are my people, I'm going to give myself to you. I desire for you to be faithful in return because I love you and I want to be united with you. Remember, that is the whole point of scripture, that God loves us and he wants to be united with us. And so... The best way, I think, to understand Scripture, to understand the Old Testament, is this timeline. So if you look on the front of your little packet here, there's a color-coded timeline. Now, I told you I would show you uh, last week my Bible, these tabs. They are also color-coded because they correspond to this particular timeline. What this timeline does is it puts everything in the Bible and arranges it in a beginning-to-end narrative timeline. And it tells you the whole overall story of Scripture. The overall story of God loving us, desiring to be united with us, and building these covenants with us, reaching out, and time after time, even though we break these covenants constantly, he is still faithful. And so we hear these stories over and over and over again of what God has done. The two central events of the Old Testament are the Exodus, which you probably are familiar with, and one that you're maybe not as familiar with, the Exile. And those on this timeline are the lighter red color and then the baby blue color. And everything around them is either leading up to that or drawing away from those two central events of the Old Testament, the exodus and the exile. Times in which the people, the chosen people of God, who he created, who he loved, who he wants to be in relationship with, turned away. And after generation after generation, God finally said, all right, I'm going to bring you out of this place of darkness that you have been. One being slavery in Egypt brings them out through the Exodus. One being exile in Babylon, bringing them back home, returning them to the promised land. So we're going to talk about this timeline here and give you a picture of what are the main central events of the Old Testament. So how can we understand when we open this dense part of the Bible that we may not be that familiar with? How can we immediately understand where we are in the trajectory of this story? Okay? So in the beginning, Genesis 1, God created us, right? Out of love because what? He wants to be united with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And pretty early on, by about, I don't know, page 3, we broke that relationship <laughs> by turning away from that love and trying to choose something other than that love. Choose something other than God. Choose ourselves, our own desires, our own pursuits. And ever since then, that has been the story of human history, right? We're all turning away from the thing that we want to do. As St. Paul says it, I do the thing that I do not want. And yet I want the thing that I do not do. He knows he wants to do the right thing. And yet, 
human history, our desires get distorted, and time after time we turn away from God, we don't do the things that we're supposed to do, and we see that displayed all throughout the Old Testament. This is why it's so beautiful to read the Old Testament, because it is our story. It is a story that speaks to us about who we are, our desire to know God's love, and yet constantly turning away, and yet he is still faithful, chasing after us, always finding a way to redeem us and bring us back to relationship with him. And that ultimately comes in the person of Jesus Christ. But not knowing how that's been anticipated, anticipated for thousands of years before, it loses a little bit of its climactic depth if we don't understand the Old Testament. So in the beginning, that is the first phase there, the early world. It's painted tur turquoise because that is the view of Earth from far away, God's view of us, right? He created all of us. And this stands for the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, I will tell you, everything in the Bible, the overarching events, I mean, there is hyperbole, there is exaggeration in the Bible, but the overarching events of the Bible can be historically verified all the way up to about Genesis 12. But everything before that, Genesis 1 through 11, there are pieces of which we know, okay, yeah, something like this probably happened. But these are what we call more of the creation mythic tales. Not that they're mythic in the sense that they didn't happen, but they're mythic in the style of literature, meaning they use a lot of symbolism and a lot of the existing stories and symbols that were around at the time to try and communicate an unmutable truth about who God is and why he created. So as I said last week, no one was there at the beginning when it says God spoke, let there be light, and there wasn't someone there. Hold on, can you say that again? I'm trying to get this down. I, can't, you know, I couldn't see before you created light, so it was really hard for me to write. Can you do that again? Like, no one was there recording it live. There were these stories happening, passed down generation after generation, and they didn't begin to be written down until at the earliest, about 1200 BC. Now, if mankind started developing anthropologically, oh my gosh. I shouldn't have even set up that sentence because I don't know. I think like 200,000 years ago, maybe. Is anyone a history buff? But, um, and then mankind really set forth in this whole cognitive revolution about 70,000 years ago in Africa and spread all across the face of the world suddenly. But that's a long span of time for these stories to be passed down and suddenly just be written down in 1200 BC. And so that's why these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we don't look at them and ask, who, what, where, when, and how. We don't say, okay, God created the world in seven literal days, exactly like this. What we see is the why, that God created us in stages, infused in us an immortal soul because we're created in his image and likeness, and he did it because it was good and because he loves us, and because what? He desires to be united with us. But it also explains why we are not always united with God, that eventually sin entered the picture, Evil, violence, suffering entered the world, and eventually all of the peoples were scattered across the world. And that's the story that we get in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Now, we do have tower-like structures from ancient civilizations that could have been the Tower of Babel. We do have many stories about a local or regional flood in the area of the biblical peoples, like in the story of Noah. And we do even have a temple in the desert that is inscribed to Lot, the cousin of Abraham, that is still standing to this day. But all the way back to the Garden of Eden, these are stories, not scientific textbook facts, but stories about truths that God wanted us to know about how we were, or why we were created, out of love, because we are very good. 
So when we look and read that first 11 chapters of Genesis, we always have to have that lens. But eventually we get into the rest of Genesis and we get into the patriarchs and the matriarchs. We get into Abraham and Sarah. God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you that outnumbers the stars. And he has a son named Isaac, and Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have two sons named Jacob and Esau. You maybe remember these stories of these twin brothers who are always at each other's heels. But the blessing goes with the younger brother, Jacob. He's renamed Israel, and he has 12 sons who are then become the beginning grounds for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if we don't know that, it doesn't really make that much sense why Jesus comes and chooses 12 apostles. But if we know that he is coming to be the savior of all of Israel, and he chooses 12 apostles representing 12 tribes that were lost, that were the extension of this promise to Abraham saying, I'm going to create a nation of a great multitude through which to save the entire world in you, then we miss part of the story. And so it's important to go back and read these stories of our forefathers and foremothers in the faith to understand where we came from and these covenants that God made. Eventually... You know the story of Joseph and the you know, Technicolor Dreamcoat. Maybe you've seen the musical, or maybe you've actually read it in Scripture. But um, like 38 to 50, I believe, in Genesis, it's all about Joseph. And his brothers are jealous of him. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. But he gains favor with Pharaoh as an interpreter of dreams and eventually saves his whole family from a drought. And they all move to Egypt. And then a few hundred years later, they have multiplied so great that the Pharaoh in Egypt gets worried and he enslaves them. And that is why we have the story of Moses come on the scene. At a time when, God, or when Pharaoh is annihilating, killing, sacrificing all of the young boys, Moses is saved, raised up in the home of Pharaoh. And through him, God chooses to redeem and save the Hebrew people. And he does this in a few very significant ways. First of all, he brings 10 plagues, which are written uh, on a chart in this resource packet that you have. And these 10 plagues, you may think they're kind of strange. The interesting thing is plagues 1 through 9 all actually have scientific and ecological explanations for events that happen in Egypt somewhat commonly surrounding their agricultural cycle. The 10th plague has no other explanation than divine intervention. However, the 10 plagues also represent a symbolic destruction of an Egyptian god or goddess. For instance, when the, the Nile turned red with blood, there was a god of the upper Nile and a god of the lower Nile, and it was believed that when that happened, that the god, the one true god of these Hebrew people, actually killed those Egyptian gods, and they no longer existed. So this is a story of God creating this battle that he is winning in the supernatural realm to show the Egyptians they have no power over these chosen people because it's through them that he's going to redeem and remind us time and time again that he loves us and that he wants to be united with us. And then in the very last plague, the tenth plague, God says that he's going to have the angel of death come and the firstborn son of every family will be killed unless they do what is now known as the Passover. They kill the Passover lamb and they spread its blood on the doorpost. And you'll see on one of the charts in this resource that um, where it says uh, the Jewish Passover and the new Passover, that this is setting the stage for Jesus. They choose a lamb on the 10th day of the month to be slaughtered once they wait until the 14th day of the month, they spread its blood with hyssop on the doorposts. Jesus enters Jerusalem on the 10th day of that same month. He's killed on the 14th day of that month. He is called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just as the Passover was an offering 
uh, for sin and different sacrifices were an offering for sin, a recognition of sin. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and self-offering for the forgiveness of our sins. His blood is spread on the, do- on the cross beam of the cross. He's given wine on a sprig of hyssop, that same branch that is used to spread that blood on the doorposts of those in Egypt. And so if we don't understand the Old Testament, we don't understand the gravity of what happened through Jesus, that he is the new Passover, that he is instituting a new, last, or a new Passover meal in the Last Supper in the Mass, and so every time we gather here on Sunday at Mass, we are not just representing the one and only sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in thanksgiving and recognition for the forgiveness of our sins and our need for him, but we're also hearkening back thousands of years before that to the Passover, to what God did to save and redeem Israel out of the clutches of Egypt and slavery. And just as we're released, they were released from the slavery of oppression, we are released from the slavery of sin when we enter into that sacrifice of the Mass, when we enter into the sacramental relationship with God that our church offers us. And so you'll see through the middle of these sections, as we kind of briefly talk about them, there are certain books, Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 12 through 50, Exodus. And if you follow that all the way down the timeline, what that's saying is if you read only these books in that order, you will get the overall story of Scripture. But the problem with the Bible is it doesn't present those books in order. There's other books in between. Because some of those books tell you some other things that were going on at the time. So if you see other books written here like Job, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those are other books that are happening at that time that help you understand that even though this might not be part of the main story, there are other things going on during this time. And so if you, next time you read, let's say, Deuteronomy, I don't know why you would sit down and read Deuteronomy, but um, I mean, there's some good stuff like we heard in the first reading from today, but there's a lot of stuff that is easy uh, to help you go to sleep at night. But next time you're opening your, your Bible to Deuteronomy, you'll know, oh, this is while they're wandering in the desert. So this isn't just a lot of boring laws and discourses. This is reminding the Hebrew people that God has chosen them, that he loves them, that he wants to be united with them, and that if they do these things, they'll have a good life and be in good, fruitful relationship with him, and they'll enter the promised land. That's why it's important to know this, not just to be bored to death, but to recognize the actual context. So that's how you read this. And that's what happened when Moses led the people out of Egypt. He led them into the desert. They wandered for 40 years. And we read about that in the book of Numbers. But eventually they enter into the promised land. And we hear about that in the books of Joshua, who was the uh, predecessor of Moses, and the book of Judges. Because when they enter the promised land, they have to overtake all of the people who are there gain the land that the Lord has promised them, and they are ruled by a series of judges. And you may know some of the names of these famous judges, uh, the most famous of which is Samson, the story of Samson and Delilah, and also the final judge was also a prophet, the prophet Samuel, who ends up choosing, uh, through God chooses through him these kings that will then come and institute this royal kingdom of the Hebrew people. And so the purple section... You can read in First and Second Samuel about these kings that God chooses to rule the Hebrew people. Now that they've been redeemed, now that they've been brought out of Exodus, now that they have this Passover meal to remember God saving them year after year, they become this great nation, and God rules over them through the kingship of great kings like King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. But the problem with those kings, no matter how great they were, no matter the fact they were chosen and anointed by God, they still sinned. They still broke the covenant. They were still unfaithful to the law. Even King David, who's praised as this great and wonderful king of the Old Testament, 
It's sometimes we forget that he uh, fell into adultery with a woman, didn't anywhere in scripture, scripture ask her permission, first of all, then fell into adultery with her, and then led her husband out to slaughter in battle. Not the greatest law follower, and yet he is praised as the greatest, or one of the greatest of the Hebrew, the Jewish kings. And so we can see that no matter when God makes these covenants with us as humans, we're still frail. We will still fail because we're broken. And he still reaches out and loves us, but we see the stage beginning to be set where God is like, look, if I'm going to make a covenant with you that's going to be eternal, that's going to be everlasting, you're not going to be able to keep up that end of the bargain because you're broken, because sin has broken humanity. So I'm going to have to come down there as one of you and make that everlasting covenant. And we see that, that stage being set for the New Testament as we travel through this Old Testament. Now we get to this point in the Old Testament, and this is probably most of the stories that you know, right? You know a lot of the stories in Genesis. You know the story of the Exodus. You've heard about them wandering. Maybe you've heard the stories of some of those judges and those kings. And that's where a lot of common knowledge about the Old Testament stops. And that's because it gets very confusing after because the kingdom of Israel splits, and there's civil war. This is the black period, the divided kingdom, where north and south are against each other. The northern kingdom of Israel is divided against the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom has many kings, all of whom are incredibly corrupt, all of whom desecrate uh, and blaspheme against God. They start sacrificing to pagan idols. They turn away from the law. And most of the southern kings do that, except for a few good ones. Hezekiah, Josiah, uh, people like that. But a lot of kings that we don't hear about because this was a very frail and uh, faltering time for the Jewish people, the chosen people. They thought that God had finally brought them into the promised land, this great, beautiful kingdom, and then they lost it. They built the temple. The temple being their connection with God and the glory of God actually dwelled above the temple. You could see the presence of God above the temple every single day. And they blew it. And that's our story too, isn't it? God reaches out to us. He loves us. He desires to be united with us. But day in and day out, we do things that are selfish. We do things that we shouldn't do. And God doesn't look at us and say, you're so bad, or I don't want to be in relationship with you. No, he keeps trying. No matter all of these covenants that you might read about in these resources, the one thing that's common in all of them is that God never broke his end. He is still faithful to the covenant he made with Adam and Eve, and he's still faithful to the covenant he made with Noah, still faithful to the covenants he made with Abraham and with Moses and with David. They're still valid. He has not given up on us, and he never will. That's the beauty of knowing the story of the Old Testament. So even though at this time, you'll see now, all down on the bottom here, we start to see these names of wisdom literature and prophets come up. Because people are trying to write and say, this is what it means to live a good life, to follow the law, to be wise. You should do these things because we're not going on a good track. And then God sends prophets to say, hey, if you guys don't turn back to the law, something bad's going to happen. And eventually, because they didn't listen, God being a father and we his children and me being a parent, no, kids don't always listen, right? They turn and turn away, and eventually the great kingdom of Babylon comes in and takes all of the Jewish people into exile in three waves of deportation. And all through that time, we have more prophets coming to say, hey, it's coming, or it's happening right now, or this might be the first wave, but you think it's past. No, there is more coming. And they keep trying to tell people, be faithful, be faithful, return to relationship with God because he loves you and wants to be united with you, but they don't listen. 
And so they end up being in exile for almost 200 years. The temple is destroyed. They lose their identity. They lose their connection with God. Ten of the 12 tribes of Israel are permanently lost into history. And it seems that this promise of a redeemer, this promise of a savior, of a Messiah that begins to be prophesied about is never going to happen. But then in the yellow period, in 538 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia, a real person, these are all historical events that really happened, says that all of you people who are now part of the Babylonian Empire that we've now conquered as the Persian Empire, you can go home, rebuild your temple. I'll even give you some money and help you. And you can go return and worship your God and be the people that he chose you to be. And so they return, they begin to rebuild the temple, but it's not the same glorious temple that it once was. God's presence doesn't return. There's still this angst, this hope, this desire. And after Persia, who gives them a lot of permission to do this, suddenly the Greek Empire takes over through Alexander the Great and begins to Hellenize the entire world and say, you have to worship these gods, you have to speak Greek, you have to be like a Greek person, or we're going to execute you. And they start setting up desecrating uh, idols in the temple. And so a small family, the Maccabeans, they revolt in 167 BC and get out of the thumb of foreign oppression. And there's a small time where there is an actual uh, dynasty, an um, independent Hebrew kingdom in Israel that no one is overruling, no one is oppressing. But that doesn't last long, and when Rome takes over Greece, they come into the Promised Land, and they let them still continue to worship their God, but they have to pay taxes, they have a lot of... Um, rules and restrictions from the Roman government, and that sets the stage for the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born into the kingdom of Israel under Roman rule and under Roman oppression, and all these people thinking time after time that the Messiah was going to come, still waiting, still longing for that promise of God's love and reunification with him to unfold. If we don't know that story and the longing in the hearts of our Jewish brothers and sisters that matches the longing of our hearts every day when we wake up and we're looking for something more, something more to life, some sense of meaning or purpose. If we don't see that longing building up to the person of Jesus Christ, then it's going to lose its gusto. It's not going to be as meaningful to us because we miss the history, we miss the reality, we miss the beauty of the fact that God is reaching out to us, desiring to be in relationship with us. And that sets the stage for everything we're going to talk about next week in the New Testament. So the Old Testament, it might be a very intimidating book. It might be a very difficult thing to get through or to digest. But there's beautiful little stories. There's these things in the Old Testament, too, called novellas, biblical novellas, like the book of Tobit or the book of Ruth or Judith, these beautiful kind of isolated stories that fit into this timeline. You can see when chronologically they happen in history, but they just teach us about how do we live in relationship with God in our everyday life, no matter the circumstances, whether it's severe loss and grief, like in the story of Ruth, whether it's we're looking for meaning, for love or purpose, like in the book of Tobit, whether it's we're trying to stand up to our oppressors, like in the book of Judith, whatever it might be, there's a story about it in the Old Testament. Every great story. My wife loves Shakespeare, and she's always pointing to how things are like from Shakespeare. And I kind of want to always point back and be like, yeah, but that's also from the Bible. Like Shakespeare probably stole it from the Bible, you know? But I don't, because she always wins. So, <laughs> as it should be. Um, but that's really like, you know, like Lion King is really the story of, what is it, Eric Hamlet or Othello? Do you know? Sorry. I mean, you're her dad, so you should know, too. Uh, uh, probably more Hamlet. Hamlet, yes. So the story of Hamlet is the story of Lion King. 
But that story of betrayal and the desire, like, oh, God, like, I've lost everything, that's the book of Job. It's really the book of Job, right? So if we read the, the Old Testament, if we read these stories and know these stories, then we see everything else that attracts us to story, that attracts us to things that we desire in life, that connects us to some sense of meaning or purpose or joy has already been written down in the greatest story ever told, the story of God's love for us and his desire to be in relationship with us. And no matter what we do, no matter what we suffer, no matter exodus or exile, no matter what is oppressing us or holding us back, God will always come and free us. There is always hope in Jesus Christ. That is why the name Jesus means God saves. God saves. Because that whole Old Testament story leading up to him is all about how the Hebrew people got saved time and time again despite their own misfortunes, putting themselves in all of these different difficult situations, and yet he was faithful. But he had to keep making covenants, and we kept breaking them until he ultimately could come and be on both sides of the agreement, the human and the divine, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what we'll talk about next week. And so I pray you will look through these resources. There's some great things about the similarities between the old Passover meal and the new Passover meal. Um, the old um, story or the ideas of the old Paschal Lamb and Jesus as the new Lamb, the plagues, the prophets, that overall timeline. And if you want the story of salvation history from beginning to end, read through just the books on this middle band of this timeline. Of the 73 books in the Old Testament, you would read maybe about 12 of them from beginning to end in that order. And you'll finally hear the story from beginning to end and begin to see how all these other things fit in and how that fits into the story of your own life. And we'll see that fulfilled next week, next Sunday, in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you so much, Lord, for all that you have done generation after generation, millennia after millennia, continuing to chase after us. You created us out of love. And even though we desire to be our own authority, to turn away from you for earthly, temporary, instant gratification-oriented things that separate us from you. You are always, always seeking to bring us back in relationship with you, always desiring to love us, not to judge us, not to condemn us, but to bring us back to you because that is where we belong. Help us never to forget that. And every time we open your word, your scriptures, to be reminded of that beautiful and true fact. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, my friends. I hope you enjoyed that talk on the Old Testament and that it was a blessing to you. Stay tuned next week for part three of three on the New Testament in a similar vein. But in the meantime, as always, it's my duty to remind you, please follow us on social media. Check us out on the web at manafoodforthought.com. And if you want to become a financial sponsor for as little as $1 a month, you can do that and support us and keep this podcast going uh, by clicking on the Patreon tab on our website. Until next time, we will see you in the Eucharist. God bless.